So I want to tell you today about a word, um, a word that has been around a long time, a word and a concept. And it's probably a word that you've heard before that you're probably not that unfamiliar with. But I've noticed that sometimes words and concepts, when they have a bunch of years on top of them, or maybe a bunch of traditions on top of them, or, or lots and lots of years of teaching on top of them, sometimes the word can lose a little bit of that oomph and that power that it originally held. The word that I'm going to talk about actually for the next three weeks is this word, disciple. Uh, the concept is discipleship, or maybe just more simply said, just what it means to be a disciple. When this word was written into the scriptures in the first century, the word disciple was something different than maybe we usually think about when we hear it. It's not used to describe like a teacher and a student. More, um, this isn't terms we use that much anymore, but more like an apprentice and a master. So to be a disciple is not uh, to say, like, I went and studied under this person, or I went to college and I had this great professor. It's, it's not like saying, yeah, I'm going to go to college. It's more like saying, I'm going to give up my life. Uh, the original disciples were, were people who, uh, we were told, dropped their nets because they were fishermen. They dropped their old jobs. It's like they laid their old lives, old lives down so that they could follow this Jesus a disciple was someone who would come underneath someone and learn from them and, and imitate them and, and work with them and, and study underneath them. And so at some point, if the apprentice and master thing was working just right, you would be able to look at the disciple and see the image and the work of the master. So someone would be able to look at someone and say, I can see who you disciple under. I can see who your Lord is. I can see who your master is. If you got the chance to disciple under someone, your identity is as the disciple. Your allegiance is to the one you follow. Your motivation revolves around this relationship, and you're willing to sacrifice everything to be a disciple. These four words that you can see will sort of guide us in this journey where I'm going to ask ourselves for the next three weeks, who am I a disciple of? Who are you really discipling under, Jesus or something else? And the way we'll seek to understand that, again, is just by using these four words. Where does my identity lie? Where are my allegiances? What motivates me? And ultimately, what I think is the question of life, what are you willing to give yourself for? Uh, this series, I hope, and I think will be a test of sorts, and I think this is probably the time for this sort of test. It might feel a bit uncomfortable because unless you just have this nailed, and I don't think any of us do, if you're like any of the disciples that have come before, you'll have to admit, I don't have this down, and if I'm honest, I'm probably discipling under some other masters. If you're like the disciples that have come before us, you might even have doubts. Can I do this? You might even doubt, is Jesus really worth all that we're talking about? But true Jesus disciples will always be willing, not to get it perfectly right, perfect adherence to all the things that are being asked is not what makes you a disciple. It's those who are willing to over and over again say, I'm sorry, God, I repent and I renew, and I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my everything. And so I'm going to be given an invitation. And for many of us, it'll be a re-invitation of sorts to say, yep, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. 
I want to be a disciple of Jesus. That's my identity. That is my ultimate identity. We're going to talk about how you actually don't have to give up all the other things that you belong to, all your other identities. At the end of this, most of us, you know, we're still going to say, I'm still an American, or I'm still a Vols fan, or I'm still uh, identify as a parent. That's really important to me. Or I still identify, uh, find identity in my career, or maybe in my heritage. There's all these things that we find our identity, but my ultimate identity is as a disciple of Jesus. My ultimate allegiance is to Christ. My, my ultimate motivation is to do what God wants, to obey God, to do the will of God. My ultimate sacrifice, what I give my life for every day, what colors my every action is this Jesus who captivated my heart, saved me from my sin, rescued me from loneliness, took me out of shame, and set me up in a strong place. This Jesus is everything to me. Uh, what I mean, I'll say it again, is I'm not saying you can't identify with other things, like find identity in a sports team or as a proud parent or as a Democrat or a Republican. But a disciple of Jesus can never ultimately, ultimately identify with anything above Christ. So I can say I pledge allegiance to the flag, but not above Jesus. I can be motivated by all manner of things, but when the rubber meets the road, my main motivation is this relationship with my master. So discipleship is so important, and that's why I want to unpack this term and hopefully give it back its luster and give it back its, its power because it's actually what Jesus said we were supposed to be about after he left. He talked, he's like, basically, this disciple thing we're talking about, being a disciple and making disciples, is the crux of what Jesus left to us when he ascended back to heaven. There's this place where he gives us his great commission. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but it's found in Matthew chapter 28, if you're wanting to read along. It's what Jesus commanded to do. It's sort of like Jesus' final official charge to his disciples. It's really an incredible story where we find ourselves in Matthew 28. Jesus has died and been resurrected and then spent 40 days with his disciples. 40 days in the Bible is a long time. So they might have been thinking, whew, Jesus is back. This is good. <laughs> we got our Jesus again. But then they can tell, oh, he's going away again. Listen to what it says in Matthew 28, verse 16. It says, then the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. So picture it, the, the 11 disciples. If you're thinking, I thought there was 12, you're right. At this point, there's just 11. You'll have to go back and read the story. They lost one. And they are standing on a mountain in Galilee. Why is that important? Galilee is where all this started for these guys. This is where they dropped their nets. So Jesus is, I think, being intentional to bring the guys back to where it started. Picture where it started for you. What would it be like for Jesus to bring you back there and give you a new commission? So here they are, and Jesus shows up, and it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. You get it, right? These are the core disciples, the ones who actually spent time with Jesus here on earth. And they're on the mountain with the resurrected Jesus, and they fall down and worship him. And yet some of them are still like, is he really who he, who he says he is? They worship him and they doubt him. That's what disciples do. Then Jesus came to them, the next verse, and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I don't know about you, that's who I want a disciple under. <laughs> the one that I'm gonna call master is the one who says, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Very important statement. That's why he says, therefore, go and make disciples. So because Jesus holds all the power, he can say, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And he says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. He tells his disciples to go and make disciples of the whole world. His disciples are supposed to go make disciples of all the nations. Yes, he says to baptize, but notice that the baptizing was for those who were being made a disciple. The way disciples are made, he says, is to go and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. So one way disciples are made is by other disciples teaching them to obey what Jesus has said to do. And then he gives this great promise. You can see it there on the screen. He gives a promise that fills all time and space. He says, I'm going with you. No matter, to the end of the earth, I'm going with you. To the end of time, to the end of the age, I'm going with you. Now, what I've done in these last few minutes is something Bible teachers do a lot. I've, I've done it many times uh, to, to many of you. And that is give you some rational understanding of what Jesus is saying we should do and then ask, for you to respond. You know, this is what Jesus says, and this is how you're supposed to respond. But there's actually only one thing that will motivate someone to become a disciple in the way Jesus requires. And it's not a good Bible teacher telling you exactly what you're supposed to do and you getting that in your brain. Nobody signs up for what I'm talking about. Nobody signs up to be a disciple under Jesus because they read the contract and they thought it looked good. Instead, people drop their nets, move locations, leave family members behind, and ultimately are willing to give up their lives for only one reason. And that's because Jesus came to where they were and changed their life. Uh, Jesus comes and actually changes our identity. That first word we're going to talk about. He changes the way we understand ourselves. So he changes us from, you know, you fill in the blank, from a lost person, from a broken person, from a son whose dad told him he was worthless, from a daughter who was violated, from a child filled with shame, from a a mom filled with guilt, from a fisherman filled with anger, from a tax collector who knows that he's a scoundrel. Jesus comes, and there's only one thing that makes you sign up to be a disciple, and that's when you realize Jesus sought me out and changed my life. Jesus sought me out and saved me. Maybe another way of saying it is what I was taught as a kid, and that is to say, Jesus loves me. This, I know. And so, I'm not going to tell you to become a disciple because it's a good deal. <laughs> it's actually going to cost you so much. But what happens when you encounter Jesus is his love pours over you. And, um, well, listen to how John says it. So, John was one of those 11, one of, one of Jesus' 11 disciples. And he says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. That is what we are. He's saying we are loved. We're loved people. He's lavished it on us. And when you realize that you are a loved person, you realize who you really are, and that is a child of God. And what loved people do is love people. This, I think, is a a discipleship uh, mantra. Loved people love people. We understand our identity at its purest form as someone who's loved by God, which means we know that I'm a son of God or a daughter of God. The 11 disciples were loved, and so they went out to love. You may have heard uh, the play on words I'm doing here. You may have heard it said that hurt people hurt people. You ever heard that? Hurt people hurt people. It's true. 
when we carry our wounds in a way where there hasn't been healing, where we feel unloved, when we feel like we're of no worth, we're hurt and we hurt others. Hurt people hurt people. But loved people, disciples, are able to love other people because their identity is in that God has loved them first. We can love because God has loved us first. I'm doing this series before the election. There's an election coming up. Uh, I'm doing it at this time because I have to admit I'm a bit perplexed. This year caught me by surprise. Anyone else? Like this year and just like all that went with it and even the way that we have acted, it's just caught me by surprise. Christians acting more like hurt people who hurt people. Like what is going on? We, as those who've been loved, acting like hurt people and what hurt people do is hurt people. When actually our core identity, if we understand it correctly, is that love has been lavished out on us. I mean, I'm guilty as well is that I want to lash out at someone just because they don't think like me. I don't know when that started. <laughs> you know, that's how hurt people react because they're so hurt. And that's why our identity is so crucial. It's not about behavior modification, me telling you how to act and, and, and all that. It's, it's actually remembering who we are and finding a minute in our lives to remember, oh yeah, Jesus sought me out. <laughs> That my identity is not in somebody who knows the Bible well or who had the right teacher along the way. It's as someone who was lost, and now I'm found. <laughs> Glory to God. So I don't look on judgment with another person. I look at them with love because that love was poured out on me. Listen to this going further in John's chapter 3. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And so when your identity is as one who had no chance outside of Jesus, that's my identity, then you begin to see other people, even if they think differently than you, as people who have no chance outside of Jesus. And then do you know what your hope for them is? That they get water poured out on their head, that they're baptized, but not just baptized, but that they become and grow as a disciple. And so these loved disciples begin loving the world, Loved people love people. Our identity impacts how we uh, live our lives and how we are known as a disciple. So that people will look at us and say, ah, I see the image and the work of their master. They must belong to Jesus. In this series, in love, I'm going to ask you to do some hard things. But not before you understand that you are deeply, greatly, and eternally loved by God. If that has not sunk into you yet, don't pay attention to the rest of what I'm going to say. It doesn't really matter. It starts with an identity of understanding that God loves me. And so it's like, how can you get that across? And Jesus, I think, thought about that. Like, how can I tell you what it's like to get that identity as a loved person and a loved person first? One of the times when Jesus was trying to explain it, because people just didn't think the love that Jesus was talking about could really go as far as he was saying. He said, how can I tell you that you're loved? He's like, it's like a sheep who is lost in the ravine 
and a shepherd who goes and finds him and leaves the 99 behind. He's like, how can I tell you about this love? He's like, it's like a lady who has a coin, one measly coin, but when she lost it, she stays up into the night and sweeps the whole house until she finds that coin, and then she throws a party for the coin that was found. He's like, how can I tell you that you're loved? He says, oh yeah, it's like a son who ventures back, still reeking of the pigsty life that he had put himself in, and the father runs to him and welcomes his son as a prince. He's like, how can I tell you about how loved you are? Not a student and a teacher, okay? Not a student and a teacher. A a, a sheep and a shepherd. A coin, that's you. And a lady who'll throw a party over it. Uh, A son and a father. I said earlier I was perplexed uh, about what's going on. I'm also concerned, you know? I'm also concerned. If we, as people who are disciples of Jesus, live out of any other identity other than we are sinners in need of God's grace ourselves. If we live out of any identity other than loved people love people, we'll get this whole discipleship thing off. If we take on uh, the haughtiness and the finger pointing that I see, that we see in the current political climate, we'll be in danger of actually becoming disciples of our nation rather than those who are making disciples of all nations. See the difference? If we just co-opt how everybody else is acting, we'll become disciples of the nation rather than those who are making disciples of all nations. And that's the charge that Jesus gave us. And so when we have these little incongruencies and we let something get a little bit higher on the discipleship scale, we feel it. I felt it all week as I've prepared for this sermon. Oh, I've got some things off. So when I talk about those things, I feel tension. I feel discomfort. But again, the mark of a disciple is not someone who gets it all right. It's one who's willing to say, I'm sorry, God. I put something above you. And I repent. And I come to you now to be renewed. The first invitation of a disciple is simply to say yes to Jesus. Simply to say yes to Jesus. I want to put him first. Next week, we're going to explore how this core identity can lead to our ultimate allegiances and our motivations. On the following week, we're going to talk about what that will mean for us, that we'll have to give up and sacrifice. But first, with the faith of a child, like Gracie, perhaps, would we say yes to Jesus? In the way that we can say it, in the way that we say yes, could we say yes to Jesus with our whole heart? A few weeks ago, I was um, walking into a local coffee shop, big surprise, and I went up to the counter, and the young woman looking there, uh, working there, she looked at me, and she said dramatically, she said, is that you? And uh, I didn't know who she thought I was. I had my mask on. I said, who do you think I am? You know, I get Anderson Cooper a lot. I'm sort of tired of it, you know. <laughs> and so I'm like, he's much paler than me, I'm sure. And, uh, and so she says, um, she says, are you Pastor Jacob? And I said, yes. And she began to cry. And um, she said, uh, your church saved my life. She said it kind of loud, like I feel like the whole coffee shop heard it. She said, your church saved my life. And as I began to learn Jenna's story, it turns out in March, she was going through a difficult time with depression and despair. And in her dorm room, in her college dorm room, someone sent her a link to these online services at Providence Church. And in her MTSU dorm room, Jesus, the shepherd who seeks out the sheep, Jesus, the one who throws a party over a coin. Jesus, the one who welcomes a son who smells like a pigsty bag. Jesus sought her out and found her and saved her life. 
And here we were in the cafe, and she's crying, and I'm crying. And another girl working there walks over and asks her, are you okay? And I'll never forget it. I'll always remember what Jenna said. She said, I've never been better in my whole life. Because she had found in the midst of her hurt life an opportunity to not go down a road of weeks or months or years of being a hurt person who hurts people. But instead, she heard and believed that the Father had lavished out love on her and that she was indeed something different, a daughter of God. That is who she is. That is her identity. She realized, I'm a loved child of God. That's who I really am. And that, my friends, is where discipleship starts. I want this word to come alive to you again, to be a disciple of Jesus, that it would be the thing that wakes you up in the morning. And it would be the thing that you would put above all other things to say, that is who I am. That you would put all of your allegiance towards Jesus and let the other things fall beneath. That you would be motivated in, in your relationships and in your work and in your, in your family. You'd be motivated by this belief that your master is the one who will lead you to the good things. That you would begin, that we would begin to sacrifice everything for Jesus. That's how we'll become those who make disciples of all nations. Loved people love people.